0: And Welcome to Desert Hills this morning. We're excited to have you during this Christmas season. Um, I think our worship leader likes Christmas. How about you? I think he really likes Christmas. And uh, I I thought in the one song when he had his energy at a certain point, I thought there's no way he could continue like that. You know what I mean? But uh, he did, and uh, we're appreciative of that, appreciative of you being here. Um, To sum up the video, For God So Loved the World That He Gave. That's what Christmas is all about. God giving us his only begotten son for one express purpose, to live a perfect life, to die a death that he didn't deserve in our place for our sins so that we could be saved. And so I want to encourage you as you have ability and as God leads you, please give to the Christmas offering. We're trying to end the year in a positive uh, uh, way. And uh, next year, I know that everything kind of seems up in the air for the economy and where people are at. And I know the expenses of everything have gone up. But I want to encourage everybody as a Christian to be faithful in their stewardship. We would like to support our missionaries more money a month. We would like to be able to give more to them so that they can use those dollars to accomplish more for the kingdom of God. And that can only happen as God's people are faithful to the giving of their tithes and offerings on a regular basis here at Desert Hills. We're going to conclude our series this morning, The Jesus I Should Know. We're going to find ourselves in John chapter 10 and verse 22. We're going to go through this uh, sermon, the second part of this sermon, where Jesus talks about him being the good shepherd and the door. And we're going to find ourselves this morning, John chapter 10, verse 22, in a message Entitled Secure in Your Relationship. Now, everything that we've talked about leading up to this point is uh, in reference to what we're going to talk about today. So, we talked about what brings Jesus joy. We talked about the advocacy of Jesus. We talked about the heart of Jesus. We talked about Jesus being a friend of sinners. And today, we're going to kind of sum it all up in helping you to understand how you're secure in your relationship with God through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Have you ever thought or knew someone, but you really didn't know them? You ever thought you knew somebody, but you really didn't know them? Or maybe you had questions about your own identity. You ever said to a sibling when you were young, "Uh, you're not really mom and dad's child, you're adopted. And then that that sibling wondered the rest of their life, if they really were. (laughs) Anybody ever do anything like that, or is that just me? Is that just me? Now, throughout her childhood, Monica Lebeau, in 15 years, moved 28 times to different addresses with her parents, Pablo and Burma. After she turned 16, Monica discovered a secret after her mother became ill, and Monica caught a glimpse of her mother's medical records. Let's see, am I on this morning? You hear me this morning? She noticed that Burma underwent a hysterectomy nearly two decades before she was even born, making it impossible for her mother to be her mother. Now, after confronting Burma her mother about this, Monica was told that one of her older half-sisters was her real biological mother. After giving birth to Monica when she was 19, the sister gave her up and let Burma and Pablo raise her instead. However, when Monica questioned her sister, she was informed that Burma's story was a complete fabrication and lie and that Monica's real mother had actually sold her to the Lebo's in exchange for a bus ticket. Now, the story got even more bizarre when Monica found found her old birth certificate, which stated she was born in Chicago, but listed no hospital, listed no doctor, and had been filed when Monica was seven years old. Years later, during a heated family get-together, Monica finally learned about an incident where her mother hid her from the police when she was a baby. She became convinced that her parents had kidnapped her from her real family, uh, which would explain why they had moved so much when she was a small child. Monica has since hired investigators to look into her past and find out who she really is. At one point, she underwent a DNA test to see if she was uh, a girl by the name of Elizabeth Gill, a Missouri girl who vanished at two years of age from her family's front yard in 1965. However, the tests ruled this out. So the truth about Monica Lebeau's real identity continues to elude her. Can you imagine? Not knowing who you really are, Now, this was not the case for Jesus. He absolutely knew who he was and he wanted everyone else to know as well. Now as we come to chapter 10, some would call this one of the most important times in Jesus's ministry. Most would agree that this is the last public teaching before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem several months later. Now it seems that this is Jesus's last effort to get his opponents to understand who he is, and he's wanting them very intently to understand his identity. And so the Bible says in verse 22, and it was at Jerusalem, the feast of dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked into the temple uh, in Solomon's porch. Now the feast of dedication was about two months after the feast of tabernacles. Now, this feast commemorated the rededication of the temple in 164 B.C. The Greek Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes had forbidden the Jews to continue to practice Judaism and had tried to force them to worship Zeus. He set up an altar in the temple in Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig on this altar on the 25th day of Chislu, December 167 B.C. This led to the Maccabean Revolt. Mathathias initiated it and then it carried on under the leadership of his son, Judah, Judah Maccabeus, Judah the Hammer. The revolt was successful and the temple was restored and rededicated with a proper sacrifice being offered once again on the 25th day of Chislew, the 25th day of December, 164 B.C., three years later. Now, an eight-day feast was held that continued each year from that time. It is known today as Hanukkah. Now, a hallmark of this festival is the lighting of lamps and a sense of joy. The lighting of lamps and a sense of joy. I guess the Christian version of it. Jesus was hoping that religious leaders would finally experience joy and recognize the light of truth. It was during the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus gave the teaching at the beginning of chapter 10, where he spoke about being the good shepherd and the door. He now gives this teaching in our text on the 25th day of December, just months before he was crucified. Now, his teaching in a, he's teaching in a structure of the temple known as Solomon's Colonnade, or his porch, It was a place where not just Jews, but Gentiles could come because it was not officially a part of the temple. And again, he's wanting to clear up any misunderstanding concerning who he was. The leaders have surrounded the place where he's teaching. Notice verse 24. The Bible says, Then came the Jews around about him. In other words, they surrounded him so he could not escape. They cornered him. They were wanting to get to the bottom of their questions, and they were wanting to make sure that Jesus could no longer avoid him. Now, it is this time where Jesus affirms his identity. The Bible says in verse 24, Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. They literally asked, How long are you to keep us in suspense? They wanted Jesus to speak firmly and plainly. They were tired of parables. They were tired of figures of speech. Jesus realized that he had not come right out and said, I am the Messiah, the one foretold in Isaiah chapter 7, the one foretold in Isaiah chapter 9, the one foretold in Zechariah, the one foretold in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. He He didn't come out and say any of that before, but now was his chance to affirm his identity, and he did so in two ways. First of all, He affirms his identity through his works. Notice what the Bible says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe me not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now the problem wasn't in Jesus's lack of clarity. The problem was in the Jewish elders lack of faith. All that Jesus had done for three years testified to the truth of his identity. His works were not petty. His works were not self-serving. His works were gracious and loving and kind. And also his works were unexplainable. Unexplainable. How do you heal somebody who is lame and never walked a day in his life? How do you cause the blind to see? How do you cause the deaf to hear? How do you cause those who cannot speak to speak and to sing? How do you raise the dead? if there's not something unique and extraordinary about you. And his works brought glory to the Father. Later in our text, Jesus said in verse 32, many good works have I showed you from my Father. Jesus clearly wanted them to examine his life, his body of works, and therefore assume rightly that he was the Messiah. And again, later he says in the same message, verse 38, but if I do... Though ye believe me not, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. You see, the problem was, the Jewish leaders were looking for a political Messiah. Kind of like what some of us are doing today. We're looking for a political Messiah someone to deliver us from our problems. But let me just say this, the Messiah has already come. And if we're looking to a man, a political figure, to redeem us from our bondage, if you will, we got our sights all wrong because there's only one Messiah. His name is Jesus. They were looking for one who would release them from the shackles of Rome. Now, at the, at the time, commemorating Matthias and Judah Maccabeus is freeing of the Jewish people from the strong hands of the Greeks, Jesus appeared nothing like them. Jesus didn't meet their expectations of a messianic redeemer, but he should have. 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 3, strengthen ye the hands of the weak, and confirm the feeble knees. Help them to understand. Verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Uh, then shall the lame leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. That's a messianic prophecy. And in his works, Jesus opened the eyes and the ears of the blind and the deaf. He caused the lame to walk, and those who could not speak, he caused them to sing. And in the deserts of Judea, in the deserts of Palestine, Jesus caused there to be living water that was forever springing in the soul. You see, Jesus affirmed his identity through his works, and Jesus affirmed his identity through his words. Now, the Jewish rulers didn't have enough faith to believe Jesus' works nor his words. But notice what Jesus says in verse 26. But ye believe me not, because you are not my sheep. You are not a part of my fold, as I have told you. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, the call of Christ brings people into a new relationship with Jesus. Jesus said, I know them. A relationship which in turn leads to a new lifestyle. They follow me. Anyone that's ever brought into a relationship with Jesus never stays the same. God always changes them. 2 Corinthians 5 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Jesus mentions that proof of their faith is obedience. His sheep follow his voice. Just like he had said two months earlier in John chapter 10 and verse 3. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and he leadeth them out. Now the Jewish rulers couldn't believe his words because they truly didn't know Jesus and they had no desire to follow him. But we see one last thing this morning. Jesus affirms his identity today through his worth. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1 speaks of Jesus' worth with these words. Notice the price that was given for you and I to be saved. The Bible says, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as in silver and gold, From your vain conversation, your empty lifestyle received by the tradition from your fathers. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by what your mama and daddy told you. You're not saved by uh, some old time religion. You're not saved in any way by any of those things. You're not saved by your worth. It doesn't matter how much silver or gold or how much you give uh, to the church. You're not saved that way. But he goes on to say, Peter, but with the precious blood of Christ... As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. You see, Jesus paid the greatest price for all of us to be saved. He lived a perfect life, gave his life in death, shedding his own precious blood for each and every one of us. And he fulfilled God's plan, set in motion before the world began. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, we can have hope uh, that this world is not all there is, that the struggle of this life and the struggle of sin isn't the end. We can have a bright future to look forward to in heaven someday if we trust him. But just like the Jewish elders in Jesus' day, we have to believe. We have to believe his works. We have to believe his words. Which brings me to a question this morning. Have you? Have you? Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved? Have you received Jesus' payment as your own? Have you been saved from your sins and to eternal life? Now, in our text, Jesus also affirms his security. He mentions that those who have eternal life will never perish. Notice what it says in John ten twenty eight: And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never, no, not 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 never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. You see, eternal life comes from what Jesus has done on our behalf, and eternal life is forever. It's not until the next time we sin, or the next time until we sin badly. It is forever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. And Jesus clarifies by mentioning that those who have it will never no not never no not never how it's written in the original language no not never perish now the first mention of eternal and everlasting life in the gospel of john is found in john chapter 3 where jesus interacts with nicodemus in the middle of the night jesus tells nicodemus how to be born again how to have eternal life he illustrates this process as being similar to moses lifting up the serpent Uh, found in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21. The children of Israel were chiding against Moses. They were complaining that they didn't have all the good food out in the wilderness like they had in Egypt. They didn't have all the bread, and they didn't have all the vegetables, and they didn't have all the soup, and they didn't have all the fineries, even as a slave that they had in Egypt. And they were contending with getting water from a rock and manna from the ground and and birds whenever they would come and so on. And they were complaining. And so God allowed fiery serpents to to go out amongst the camp and, and literally vibrate. That would bite people and they would die. But, but Moses uh, uh, constructed a brazen serpent that when it was lifted up, as people looked to it, they were saved even though they were bit by the serpent. And so here's what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have, notice what it says, everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, if you believe, not just giving mental assent to, But believe by faith that Jesus is the only one that can save you. As the Israelites look to the brazen serpent for salvation in the wilderness, you too can be saved and can have eternal life and you will never perish. You ever had a dream that was so vivid that when you woke up you thought it was real? You ever have a dream where it was so vivid And in the process of that dream, you felt like you were dying. And you woke up just before the moment in the dream that you would have expired. People live like that. They live in a dream, in a nightmare, as if they're always going to perish and be annihilated and cease to exist. And all that they work for will be gone. There are people all over the world that live like that. But I'm here to tell you today, if you're a Christian, you don't have to live like that. Because the Bible says that no man can pluck us out of Jesus' hand. And the Bible says that we have eternal life and we will never perish. And then we see that Jesus affirms his security by explaining the security of the sheep is not based on the ability of the sheep, but the ability of the shepherd. Notice what it says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now, Jesus affirms the security of believers by telling us that no one can pluck us out of his hands. The Greek word literally has the idea of snatching like a thief would snatch a sheep from a sheepfold. No man can snatch you out of Jesus' sovereign strong hand. Now, if the devil could pluck us out of Jesus' hand, you better believe he would have already done it. You better believe he would have already used every opportunity, every transgression, every misdeed, every lustful, angry, bitter, discouraging thought. You better believe the devil would have thrown the kitchen sink at us to pluck us out of Jesus' hand. But he can't. He can't. If you could pluck yourself out of Jesus' hand, You better believe that your sins would have already caused you to lose what you have. But you can't. You can't. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not commending what is known as antinomianism, the belief that because we're under grace, we can do whatever we want. Paul made it clear in Romans chapter 6. six what shall we say then, he said? Uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? But every one of us needs to understand that our salvation isn't a work that we can produce Nor is our salvation a work that we can keep. Salvation is a work that God has provided through Jesus Christ. And our security isn't based on us. But the ability of the shepherd to do what Jesus has said in giving us salvation and keeping it. Now here's how Peter described it in 1 Peter chapter 1. I love this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, the Bible says, incorruptible and undefiled, and notice what it says, it fadeth not away. It never gets old, you can't lose it, reserved in heaven for you. Notice the next verse, I love this, who are kept, By the power of the church. Who are kept by the power of our baptism. Who are kept by the power of our deeds. No. Who are kept by the power of God. Because I believe in eternal security, some would call me a Calvinist. Because I believe in free will, some would call me an Armenian. Now, I mentioned Calvinism, I mentioned Armenianism, and some of you are thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. There are books that I'll talk about here at the end that will help give you a better understanding of this, but as quickly as I can, Calvinism has five basic points. They believe in total depravity. Now, they believe that you're so depraved, and I'm so depraved, we don't have free will, we can't make a decision. Now, I believe I am depraved. I believe that I can't save myself. I believe as a sinner, I am undone and I'm unclean. And that's why I need a savior. Calvinists also believe in unconditional election. In other words, if God has elected you to go to heaven, there's nothing you can do to hasten it. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. They also believe in what's called a limited atonement. In other words, they believe that the atonement that was given is just limited for some although we believe that Jesus died for all. Now you can get technical and semantical and understand that Jesus died for all and only some will ultimately receive the message of the gospel through faith and be saved. And you can get real semantical about it, but then they believe in irresistible grace. In other words, it's not free will, It's not you making a decision, it's God allowing regeneration to happen before anything like a decision takes place and giving you faith, and then after that happens, God's irresistible grace uh, swoons you into salvation. Now, you may say, well, you're wrong about what the Calvinists believe. Again. This is an open-handed thing, and if you believe a little differently about the five points of Calvinism, I'm not gonna condemn you, and I hope you would give me the grace as well. And then the last thing Calvinists believe, and this is why I'm called a Calvinist, Calvinists believe in the perseverance of the saints from which we get eternal security. Now, Calvinists are really staunch in their beliefs because they believe that the sovereignty of God trumps everything. And I believe in the sovereignty of God. In other words, God's ability uh, to cause or allow things to happen in our life. And by the way, Calvinism is spelled wrong, it's I instead of A, amen? Uh, but, uh, and then we have the Armenians. The Armenians emphasize the holiness of God and personal holiness, so they believe in two things. They believe that if you do not live up to a standard of personal holiness, that you can lose your salvation by two ways. Recurring regeneration means you get, saved, you, get lost, you get saved, you get lost, you get saved, you get lost, you get saved, you get lost, and so on. And then they believe in something called the apostasy theory, which you can get so bad, you can have salvation, and you can get so bad that God decides to apostatize you, to, to, to cast you away, never to be saved again. And I've talked with these preachers that believe in the apostasy idea, and I'll say, well, well, how bad do you have to get in order to apostatize? And they always talk about the same guy. I knew a guy once or heard about a guy, and he got so bad and away from God, and, and he ultimately lost his salvation, but they all talk about it seems like the same guy. Now, I believe as Christians we ought to live holy lives. The Bible says the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. But our holiness isn't the fruit of living, but our holiness is ultimately, excuse me, the fruit of living in the gospel and in our salvation as opposed to something we produce. Did you get that? Our holiness is the fruit of living in the gospel or our salvation as opposed to something we ourselves produce. In fact, Colossians tells us that salvation in and of itself, makes us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. And this isn't something we can do, this is something that God does for us. Colossians 1:22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. Now, if God makes us righteous, how can we make ourselves unrighteous? And we have to grasp and battle in our minds this question, is salvation a work of God or is salvation a work of man? If salvation is a work of God, there's nothing we can do to gain it and there's nothing we can do to keep it. And I believe salvation is a work of God. And yes, we believe in the sovereignty of God. God sovereignly ordained Jesus to die for the sins of the world. He illuminates people to the truth of the gospel through His Spirit. He gives them faith to believe, and we respond to the truth by faith, free will, and then are saved. Now, if I can have free will as God's child to go against Him, as a child, how can I then not have free will to choose or reject him in salvation. Now, I'll just say very plainly and honestly, I don't have to be a Calvinist or an Armenian, nor do you. I call myself a traditionalist, or some would say a biblicist. I'm also a Baptist. Let me me ask you something real quickly. This is real technological and thorough here this morning. Uh, Who baptized Jesus? John the? Who baptized Jesus? John the? So what's that make Jesus? I'm kidding this morning. Now, there are two books I want to recommend on the subject. The Bible and a book called Salvation is Forever by Robert Gramacchi and Chosen But Free by Norman Gleesler. Now, the point is this, we are secure. The security of the sheep is based upon the ability of the shepherd words that describe salvation doctrines like justification, propitiation, redemption, forgiveness, all bear witness to our security. And Jesus affirms our security by the relationship between him and the Father and the Son. Look at what it says. It says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And then it says, My Father which gave them me, more than all, And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. And then it says this statement, I and the father are one. Now the flock has been given to the son by the father. And the father stands behind the son in his guardianship of the flock. So the forces that oppose the child of God uh, have to confront the awesome and limitless power of the father who is, the Bible says, greater than all and no man can pluck us from the Father's hand. And notice what it says. Both the Father and the Son share unity of purpose to keep the believers secure. That's why Jesus says in John 10:30, I and the Father are one. They're one in purpose to keep the sheep secure forever. And then we see one last thing, and I'll be done. You can go to Cracker Barrel, all right? Jesus affirms his mission. Now, immediately after this, these words didn't sit well with the Jewish elders. In fact, notice what the Bible says in verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. About four months before he was actually crucified, they are ready to stone him. They had cornered him, they had surrounded him, In Solomon's colonnade. And this was the last straw. They were going to take his life. They didn't care about the crowds. They didn't care about the feast. They didn't care about the circumstances. They were going to take him out. And Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? knowing he was cornered by the Jewish elders, knowing they wanted to kill him, knowing their hearts were hardened towards him, he shows his heart towards them by patiently, lovingly answering their questions. He listens to their accusations, and then he graciously responds, verse 37, if I do not the works of my father, believe me not, Verse 38, but if I do, though you believe me not, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Now, there was no way they could deny the miracles that he had done. There was no way to deny the crowds that were moved. There was no way to deny the lives that were changed because of his ministry. And Jesus stood there taking their flack because he definitely wanted them to become a part of his fold. His mission extended even to those who hated him. Did you get that? His mission extended even to those that hated him. And our mission ought to be the same. We ought to extend ourselves to a world who isn't always fond of us. Instead of lashing back in anger, Instead of getting in social media arguments with people who have not the knowledge of God because the natural man understandeth not the things of God, there being foolishness unto them, instead of getting into all those types of unnecessary arguments and circumstances, why don't we extend the same love and compassion that Jesus extended to the lost? For the Bible says that the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. We ought to be willing to carry on Jesus' mission and help people to understand how they can be secure through a personal relationship with God because of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, in every area of life, we wonder if we have security. We hear of people anxious about job security. All of us are currently dealing with economic security. We often wonder about relational security between husbands and wives, between friends and family. We have ups and downs in life, and we wonder about emotional security. But there's one thing that we don't have to worry about as a believer in Jesus Christ. That is eternal security. Eternal security. You see, if you're truly born again, no man can pluck you from Jesus' hand. And absolutely, no man can pluck you from the Father's hand. So Christian, I want to encourage you, be confident in your relationship with the Father because of the Son. Live in the resources that have been given to you because you've received the gift of salvation and let the truth of eternal security change your life and share the truth with others so that they can have a relationship with God the Father through His Son. What a better time to do it than a time when we celebrate God giving us the gift of Jesus Christ.